Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we are looking at the second part of our little short glimpse at this portion of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12 is our focus this week. And I want to begin by reading chapter 12, and then we'll jump in. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You have come to Mount Zion, to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Almighty God, we thank you. We are a people that are grateful for your word. We know it is breathed out by you. It is infallible and perfect. Help us to hear it, to trust it, 
and to apply it to our lives. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Long before the technical age or the technological age, long before the industrial age, humanity had developed methods for transportation. Long before the advent of the internal combustion engine, long before the steam engine, even long before the advent of the wheel for that matter, people had learned how to be transported. They would ride on animals. But even before that, and in the absence of people, people would walk. Look at that. Still works. They would walk. And as I'm sure you're aware, walking is often employed as a metaphor for life. Scripture is filled with examples of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Moses, writing to the Israelites, tells them that they are to walk in all the ways that the Lord God commands them. The book of Psalms actually begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And even Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. But what happens when there is no animals and you're in a bit of a hurry in the ancient world? Well, you run. That's what you do. And if you're at all like me, if you run for any amount of time, you're a little more like this. So you run. So walking is employed as a a metaphor for life, but so too is running. Running is also employed as a metaphor for life. When, When a person is in charge of something, we say that they're running it. In fact, we even describe our schedules that way, don't we? We say that we're running a bit ahead of schedule or running a bit behind. It's kind of a way that we describe that. It's kind of language we do. But running like walking is also a metaphor that's used for life in Scripture. And when it's used, it tends to convey life in terms of mission. There's a a great focus about it. And if you think about it, when you walk, you have a goal in mind, right? Uh, But when you run... You're really usually running with a little higher level of urgency, right? There's a little bit more intentionality. There's more mission in the thought. Proverbs 4 says, When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Isaiah 59, describing the enemies of God's people, tells us that their feet run to evil. And as Paul asks us from our call to worship, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so run that you might obtain it. In other words, run with mission. Run with intention. Know the goal. Maybe you're familiar with the uh, idiom, moving the goalpost. Anybody ever heard of that? Right? It's, it's this idea that addresses the corrupt practice of changing the rules in the middle of the game or in the middle of your work context. Moving the goalpost usually gives an unfair advantage to one side or the other. And so it becomes rather important in terms of running to know who you're running for, what team you're running for, if you will. Because one team will move the proverbial goalpost with some regularity, while the other will not. The world will change its morality, it will change its aspirations, it will change its convictions over time, but God does not. God will never move or change the goalpost, and as Christians, our mission is unchanging because He is unchanging. Our goal, or our prize, as Paul puts it, is the same. It's sanctification, it's conformity to Jesus, it's dying to self, and it's grounded in our citizenship in what the writer of Hebrews calls an unshakable kingdom. That's what we just read. When I was in high school... I ran 
cross-country team. My daughter, who's now in high school, runs both track and cross-country. I know some of you know runners or have runners in your family. There's a couple interesting things about running in terms of the sport of track or cross-country. For one thing, they're both simultaneously a team sport and an individual sport. And you, you compete for your team and you compete against another team, but you also have individual times or scores. And if you run cross-country, one of the challenges of cross-country is uh, that you have to familiarize yourself with each course. That usually includes some running in fields, i.e. cross-country, or in the woods, and the hosting school will, will tend to provide signs to tell the runners which paths to take. But they can be confusing at times. Runners can and do at times get lost. And so too in running, we need to keep our eyes on the prize, on the goal, the unchanging goal, grounded in our citizenship in an unshakable kingdom. Christian life is often associated with running, specifically running a race, running with a mission or a goal. In fact, at the end of the life of Paul, Paul tells Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race, he says. I've kept the faith. And here in Hebrews 12, the writer, again, after spending most of the book telling us that Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses in the promised land, even greater than the priests, and even greater than the sacrifices, he charges us to be faithful, chapter 11, and here in 12, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let me lay out how Hebrews will look, Hebrews 12 will look. I think I'll run it. Oh. Okay, we're jumping ahead. Sorry, my fault. So 11, 1 through 11 is running the race with endurance. 12 through 17 is building endurance through discipline. What's the role of discipline? How do we understand discipline? That's what the author's trying to get us to think about. Run towards the prize. You need to know where you're going. That's really important. And run with gratitude and a, and a fear of the Lord. And that's, the, that's how the whole chapter kind of shapes out. So let's just, let's just jump in. And we'll begin with the first section, running uh, the race with endurance. And so we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, last week, uh, we ended here. We kind of talked a little bit about looking to Jesus the author uh, has ended his history of faith, as it were, faith in action through redemptive history. And then he writes, uh, with, with that in mind, he writes this. So the therefore is taking us to this section. In light of all of that history of faith, in light of our charge to be faithful, here's what I want you to do. And what he does is he describes this history of faith, the, the, those who are part of it, um, as a cloud of witnesses. And the idea here really is pretty, pretty straightforward. The word cloud usually in, uh, implies something that's large. In this case, a large amount of people. And witnesses is a rather interesting word. There's kind of two things to think about here. One is witnesses in terms of its, uh, in the Greek, we get the word martis there. It's where we get our English word martyr. And so a witness is one who is martyred for their faith. Um, we have that as a component and that is true, certainly, of the list of the, of the faithful in chapter 11. They were all martyred for their faith, some rather dramatically, stoned, sawed in two, desolate, ostracized by the world. Others maybe not quite so dramatically. But all are martyred for their faith. But in a race, there is usually a crowd of witnesses, spectators, if you will, who watch and cheer the runners. This is particularly true uh, if you have ever gone to a cross-country meet or you know someone who's in it. You don't sit in a stadium and watch them run around the track. They run through the woods. It's about three miles. And so you usually have people gathering around different parts of the, of the course. And they're cheering them on. They're encouraging them. And the writer is here trying to encourage us in light of so many who are examples of living faithfully and encouraging us to do the, t the same. That is, that as they did, they ran the race 
fell. Now, I ran cross country in high school, but I don't know a ton about running. But I know a little bit. And so I can say this, runners, really like all athletes, like anyone who would strive to be the best at what they do, they tend to have two primary focuses. We've touched a little bit on them, but let me be clear. The first is to be in shape. The first is to be healthy, to run with endurance, not a sprint, but a marathon. That's how we describe life, and rightly so. Running with endurance requires training. It requires focus. It requires sacrifice. And here we're told to train for running with endurance by laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, weight could be translated a number of different ways, like a hindrance or an, an encumbrance or an impediment. Here's the thing. The writer seems to be implying that weights are something that is a bit distinct from sin. Some debate about this, but he does say weight and sin. There is some variation, some debate about it. Not all weights are necessarily cataloged as sin, so to speak, but they do become hindrances. Now, in one sense, everything that impedes our running could well be described as a sin, but for most of us, there are things that we do that are not sinful per se, but are by no means the best use of our time. This is the fun place to pause. I'm guilty too, by the way, but I mean... By the way, my whole adult life has been, I am not a good time manager. So I, speak, I, look, I look at you with guilt, but humbly. I get it. We have a tendency to do that. For many of us, we're, we're, we're looking at our lives and, and looking at the transitions that we're about to go through here in our church, wondering, what's on the other side? How much work will it take? How do we get there? And can we really do it? And is it going to happen? Now, of course, I want to charge you as your pastor to take some extra time to do the work because service is inescapably linked to your membership in the church. When you become a Christian, God calls you to engage in the local community to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another. But here's the thing. I imagine, as I look to all of you, what I'm seeing is that the biggest weight the biggest hindrance that's in front of you right now is doubt. Doubt that we'll be able to pull this thing off. Doubt that God will bless our efforts and grow the church. Doubt that new people will come or doubt that new people will stay. Doubt that we'll be able to find a new place. Doubt and more doubt and more doubt. Now doubt... It comes from things like assessing our past patterns. It comes from what we've seen happen here at Goodwill New Pulse over the past few years in the wake of COVID and everything else. It comes from things like a fear of being hurt again by losing people. We could say it this way. It comes in one sense from an increasing unwillingness to be like those listed in chapter 11. Not heroes of the faith per se but faithful people who were honest before God when their faith waned, when they had doubt. As we noted last week, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and so we are to look to him. He's the one to whom we would cry, I believe, help my unbelief, and oh, Lord, increase my faith, increase our faith. He is the one who bolsters our faith, which in turn resists and quells doubt. If I were to make my point by asking a question, it would be this. Do you know where doubt does not come from? It's not God telling you that things won't work out. It's not God convincing you to wonder if he'll bless a commitment to the church, to his church. In fact, it's kind of a funny thing. God has quite a track record of this, quite a history of asking people to trust him when it looks by all accounts impossible. Matthew and Luke 
tells us plainly that nothing is impossible with God. And if that's true, and we were to say, make a list of the seemingly impossible things that God could do, I wonder where planting a church would end up on that list. Just take a minute and think about that. If I were to, what are the things that I just, no way God's going to do it. I don't think it's going to happen. What's at the top? And where does planting a church come? I'm going to suggest it comes way down here. You know why? Because he's got a pretty long history of doing it. I think it's around 2,000 years. He's been doing it. This is not a new thing. This is not a, I don't know. It's a, yeah, he does it. And yes, some fail, but not because God stops it, not because people uh, 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 went in all in. It's because doubt seeps into the mission. But what is the mission? That's a really important question to ask. One of the things that we want to do here is to ask all the questions that we think we know the answers to again and answer them, answer them clearly. What's our mission? What is it if it is not to reach the loss for Jesus? And, and yes, it's hard to do. And yes, it's been notoriously hard to do here in New Pulse. But I think we just said that nothing's impossible for God, right? You're all here and some of you are from New Pulse. Our personal mission here for our church is to reassess the mission. To celebrate the little victories. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Not successfully necessarily, but you just did. It doesn't have to be successful. It's not your job to convert people. That's the Holy Spirit's work. It's our job to share it. When was the last time you prayed with or for someone? When was the last time you heard a testimony about God's faithfulness? Part of reassessing the mission is to remember that we, be, we, are, we all belong to the greater church. So if someone comes to faith or shares about God so that he's glorified and they begin to go to church, even if it's not this church, we should rejoice. We should rejoice because our mission is to be used by God to grow His kingdom, not just our church. And yes, we need to grow our church. But if we're faithful to His Word, to being His church, if we don't get weighed down by other measures of success, then I am confident that God will bless us with a faithful community of believers to live life together with. Now, I've highlighted doubt as a weight or a hindrance, if not a sin. But what other sins or weights do you have? What other hindrances are allowing you to weigh you down so that you, that you can't run well? It's a fun little fact that in the ancient world, runners would run naked. Can't really pull that off today without lawsuits thankfully. But the point is, no hindrance at all. What weighs you down? I can think of one that we've seen all too much of in recent years. We've allowed things like political uh, convictions to conflate with our theology in, in what would be dangerous ways. We've allowed social media and the constant noise that it produces to draw us into its web. And it's not lost on me that the early, early name for the internet was the World Wide Web. Have you ever thought about it that way? That's what a spider does. He sneakily sets his web up and hopes you get caught in it. And then you're prey. Well, guess what the internet is? It's a whole lot like that. As you just... Or is it swipe left or right? Whatever it is. I don't, know. I don't know. But man, it does it. Draws you in. We allow conspiracy theories to dominate our thoughts and fill us with worry and with doubt. More doubt. Now, I have a confession to make. In my work day, if, I'm, if it's a day that's committed to writing or study, and I have a few of those built in, I have a tendency to, when I get stuck, to turn to my phone too play games on my phone, and I'm a full-blown nerd because usually it's Scrabble. 
yeah. Geek out. All right, there it is. So, but I, you know what's really astonishing to me is sometimes I get these reports that tell me how much time I've spent on my phone, and it's more than I should. And I think, how on earth did I get anything done when I spent two hours on the phone by average? Like, really? Did I spend that much time? Ten minutes here and ten minutes there. Oh, my goodness. What a colossal waste of the limited resource of time that God gives us. But I often wonder this. How different would things be if for all of us we devoted even just 10% more of our media time to God? Just 10%. Just think about that. Would it really kill you to add 10%? You'd take it away from another place? We all do it. We relax at night. We watch a TV show. You know what that is? It's not a sin. Probably more like a weight, depending on how much we need to do it. Right? But when one TV show turns into two TV shows... And you're a night owl like me, you think, wow, that's more time wasted. I could be doing other things for the kingdom here. Here's my challenge to you. Don't just think about 10% more devoted to God generally, because God wants you to focus on specific things for His kingdom. Let me challenge you to take 10% of your time that you spend relaxing in front of media, just 10%, and focus on praying for us here. Just 10%. Solomon says, let your words be few. You don't need a lot. They just need to be genuine before the Lord. Just pray. So here's an interesting thing to think about. (laughs) And I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. It's never stopped me before, so why start now? Um, For those of you who are uh, worried, and, and let me just say this, if you are worried and you are struggling with doubt, and I know that many of you are, I'm going to set a little time aside for my, for, uh, with myself, so I'm going to be downstairs after fellowship, kind of tucked away in a corner, so you can come to me one-on-one and talk to me and we can pray together, and I want to encourage you to do that. But for those of you who are excited, when you go to pray for our little church, one of the things that might be a bit of a hindrance is, what do we call ourselves? Who am I praying for? Well, you might be surprised to hear that I've already had some um, offerings for new names for a few people who are actually quite excited. No one's surprised by that? No one's paying attention? No? Well, I was excited by it. So here's what I want to do. I want to say to you, uh, you have my email. Email me if you are interested in offering a name. I want everybody to have a chance to think about that. I want to encourage you with that. That's part of how it is that you're going to pray. You're going to pray specifically. You're so quiet. That's part of the problem. Shh. No, don't shh. You should be excited. Yeah, there's things to be concerned about, but be excited. All right, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Thank you for that. So I have one entrance for a name, and I'm going to share it with you. So I got the entrance, Church of the Gunks. Here's what I want to tell you about that, because you know what that tells us? It, tells, it says something very profound to me that I really like. It says we are very much about this community. And you know why that's really cool? Because I shared that name with Pastor Marcos, who's not from here. Funny story. And he said, does that word mean what I think it means in the South, where he's from? I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, that, that, the stuff that you get on the bottom of your shoe. Drunk. And I said, well, you've clearly demonstrated that you're not from the area. <laughs> but to have, to have that name is very specific to who we are and where we are. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty exciting. So if you have another one, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to encourage you to, to do that. 
But that's the one that's in the running right now. And so I want you to think through that and, and think about you're going to take 10% of your time and devote to praying for that church, this church, our church. Now let's jump ahead here. Let's move on a little bit. The writer is, is encouraging us to, as we said, lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And, and isn't it an interesting phrase? Because doesn't sin do just that? Doesn't it cling so closely? Too close to be recognized? Too close to do without? Too close to take honest assessment? Easily offended when it's brought up? We must lay them all aside. So as to run the race well, run with purpose, run looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, which was our focus Last week, that was the, sort of the capstone of that. Our, the origin and perfection of our faith rests in Jesus. We don't conjure it on our own. Now, what follows is a rather interesting little thing. The author here, in just one sentence, describes Jesus' earthly ministry. We're told that it was for the joy that set before him. And what joy is that? The joy of his exaltation and full restoration uh, and a restored presence with the Father. But it's also the joy that Jesus gets by gifting forgiveness, by gifting us with full communion with the Father. The joy that a husband gets through presenting his bride spotless. And we are told that for that joy, he endured the cross. And by the way, it's the only time in the whole letter where we read the word cross. We're told that Jesus endured the cross and that he despised or scorned the shame. In other words, Jesus endured much, much more than merely the physical pain of the cross. And we, we say that a lot. We say, well, he, he shouldered all the invisible things, separation from God and all of the sin. But specifically with that sin comes shame. The shame that is associated with it. One of the most powerful tools in the enemy's arsenal is doubt, as I've said, but another one is shame. Shame is, is very powerful. It's by its nature. It isolates us. It amplifies feelings of unworthiness, and shame takes a great deal of work to suppress, and we must be careful not to allow it uh, to, to uh, sear our conscience, right? So if we're sh we have shame over sin, and we keep doing that uh, to quell that. We, be, we tend to do what Paul says is sheer, uh, 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 searing the conscience, and we want to be very, very careful of that. You see, Jesus wasn't required. Uh, he was required not only to, to become sin, not, not just in a religious sense, if you will, not even in just a ceremonial way, but also in an experiential way. He is to experience sin with all of its consequences, yet never having sinned. Jesus has experiential knowledge of your shame. But not only that, He and He alone provides a means of escape and restoration through redemption. Not only does Jesus know your shame better than anyone else, but he also provides the means to restore you. And he, having done all of that for us, is now at the right hand of God, still interceding for us, still holding up his once-for-all sacrifice with all of its accompanying shame, still declaring that it alone is sufficient for all of our sin and all of our shame. You are restored in Him, and, he, and you have been set apart by Him and for Him. So run the race and run it with endurance. Only 38 more verses to go. <laughs> we'll go a little faster than that. He writes next, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. If you think that it's been hard for you, and I'm sure it has in many ways in life, because life will have trials and tribulations. If you're looking at your current context, the struggles, the ones that we're in now, 
Wondering, how could it possibly happen? How could we continue to walk, much less run? The writer offers these words, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now notice something here that I want to I draw your attention to. It's as if the author has added to the shame component Hostility. Jesus' suffering has very specific details to it. He endured shame and he endured hostility. And he did it all out of perfect love for us, having never done or even thought anything to deserve it on his own. That's the very nature of substitutionary atonement. And so the question is asked, have you ever resisted to the point of shedding your blood? The answer to that is no. Unlike Jesus, who would literally rather die than sin. That's what, that's what we're getting from that, right? Before Jesus would ever consider sinning in any manner, He would give His life. He would rather die than offend the Father. I've got a long way to go in my sanctification. Because I fold long before that. How about you? That's what we're getting from this. He would literally rather die than sin. How much resistance do we put up against the very enemy of our souls? And that's all that is, by the way. It's spiritual warfare. The enemy deceiving you to think that this thing, this is what God's keeping from you, and it's really good, and you should have it. And it's never good. Right from the very dawn of sin, where Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to what? Their own nakedness. Which comes with what? Their own shame. There it is. Let's move on. Still in this section of running the race with endurance... And now there's a little shift, uh, uh, sort of a therefore in the argument here as well. The author is simply framing your struggle, your temptation, your weakness, your difficulties in terms of fatherly discipline. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Struggle and suffering in this life are not signs that God is against you, but rather that he is treating you like a child. He's disciplining you. He's training you so that you're able to run the race with endurance. It doesn't mean that our goal that is simply to sort of cognitively grab hold of this, to understand it, and to be comforted by facts but rather, the goal is to develop increasing trust in God. Trust that God is at work even in the hardest times, disciplining us for our good and for His glory. He's disciplining us because He loves us as His children. As he writes here, um, we're going to see here, all discipline is painful at first, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness which in turn far better enables us to do what? Run the race with endurance. What do we do with that discipline? That's what comes next. We build endurance through discipline. We see it as by God's hand for His purposes. When the Father's discipline is applied, it results in increasing endurance. But I warn you, keep that in mind the next time you go to pray, O oh Lord, increase our faith, because it will probably involve increase your discipline. Now, this passage here, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and various other things, is filled with Old Testament references like drooping hands and weak knees. That comes from Isaiah 35. The charge to make our path straight. Well, that's all over Scripture. Lots of Proverbs, for example. P 
Peace and holiness are clearly themes in great abundance throughout Scripture. And the point is this. It's to remind us of the importance of these things which are pleasing to God and impossible to attain without Him and to strive for them. When you're running in a cross-country race, a three-mile race, and you're running for time, it's awful hard to lift your drooping hands and your weak knees when you are exhausted And the cloud of witnesses that's cheering you on, well, most of them, at least in an earthly race, have little experience of such struggle. They don't feel that exhaustion. They don't know it. But among them are those who've already finished the race and come back around to cheer their teammates on. And they do have experiential knowledge of that exhaustion. So that they can cheer and encourage you on knowing exactly what your struggle is like. And for us, our cloud of witnesses has nothing but all those who have experiential knowledge of your struggles. That cloud of witnesses knows all of your struggles in the here and now. And it is temporary. But they're cheering you on to run the race. He next warns against allowing bitterness to take root. Now, I am no landscaper. There is no green anywhere on these thumbs or any of the other fingers, none at all. So when I do landscaping, my solution is quite simple. Stone. You want to know why? Because stone is maintenance-free, right? No! As it turns out, it's not maintenance-free. I look at it and I think pretty pretty gravel is nice, and so what I do is I clear the grass off, and then I I get rid of that and throw it in the woods, and then I, I lay down weed cloth, which is worthless. Just while you know, just, wow, that does not work at all. Then I cover it with stone, and still the weeds grow. How in the heck does that happen? It's deeply frustrating. There's no sunlight. How do they do it? Well, weeds can actually grow in stone. You drop a little weed seed on the top of the stone and it grows. You've all seen it, by the way, because you know what weeds can do? They can grow through concrete. I can't even punch my way through concrete without breaking my hand, but a weed, I could just grow right up through it. And you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to water it. You don't have to feed it. You don't have to till the soil or weed around it. Nope. It just grows. The things that I want to grow don't do that. They require constant care. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. We we usually buy flowers every year and hang them around the deck of the pool. And I'm responsible to water them, which I do with some consistency. I'm, I'm, I'm really good in the early part of the, of the summer season. But by the time the hottest part of the month of the summer comes around, around August, I'm waning in my responsibilities. And the flowers, they let me know. Because they don't have the resiliency of a weed, they die. And they're not very pretty looking. Funny thing about weeds, too, is not only are they annoyingly resilient, they run deep If I let my weeding go, which I often do, some weeds will put up a fight. You ever try and do some weeding and you try and pull the weed out and they don't want to do it? It's like you hooked a baby shark. You just can't get it out. It's like it's held in. Then all of a sudden, all this earth comes out, moving all of my stones that are supposed to be maintenance-free. Weeds are powerful. Now, I said earlier that doubt may be playing a role in your struggle to be excited about a church plant. But if there's another danger, it may well be a root of bitterness, like a weed. For some, there may be bitterness uh, against goodwill in general. For others, there may well be bitterness against specific leaders in goodwill. But still others, you may even have bitterness towards me. Maybe you're thinking that somehow I've set this up. I've not. 
Goodwill is 100% supportive of this move. They want us to go and they want us to succeed. They, they want us to do what all churches like us do. Finish the growing process. Stand on our own. Become a church as God has been doing for 2,000 years. And as I've said from the beginning, it doesn't ever mean complete separation. I see it as affording us the best of both worlds. The best of small church with all that comes with it, with access to big church, same denomination, working together on various different things uh, whenever opportunities arise. Now, as I said before, I'm going to make my way downstairs after service, and if you are struggling with doubt or if you're struggling with bitterness of any kind, come see me. Come see me. If you don't want to talk in a group and you want to talk one-on-one, come see me. Let's pray together. What comes next? Running towards the prize. I said earlier that runners have a focus on two main things. The first was fitness, getting in shape to run with endurance on mission, as it were. But the second thing is to have a goal, an immovable goal, to know where the goal line is. Know that you're running for a team and the goal won't move. Because Christians can be assured that God never moves the goalposts. Our goal is, as I said before, sanctification, dying to self, living for Christ. And it is assured in our citizenship in heaven in the unshakable kingdom. That's what these verses here are all about. Runners, know where your finish is. We're charged to look to Jesus. But there's specific place oriented to that as well. We're assured that we'll be with Him. Where? Here. The wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ in the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the charge here is to say, this is not what you've come to, what God revealed Himself to with the Israelites in the wilderness, which was a terrifying experience and only that. You've not come to that, to what may be touched and touched with great consequences. If they touch the mountain, you'd be stoned. You've not come to that. This darkness and gloom. And if you read through through Moses, you'll see the the dark clouds and the the, the mountain literally shaked and there was fire. It's a terrifying thing. In fact, Moses says it's so terrifying that even Moses says, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. All those things are listed here. All of these things are things for you to to sort of imagine in your heart and in your soul as you think about the, 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 the goal. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus drawing you into His bride in the heavenly place. It's because of Jesus. It's grounded on Jesus. It's nothing without Jesus. But it is also the bride. It is also the place where we worship. Jesus is here and we're here with those who are enrolled in heaven and with God to all of the saints made perfect. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. All of that is essential to that. That's what they're all about. You've come to Zion. And, and I want to draw your attention to something here. Notice what it says. You have come. I know I say it all the time, and here it is. I can't resist it. I won't resist it. That is the now and not yet of the kingdom. You have come. We currently have access to Jesus through His indwelling Spirit. We're bound Him as such, and yet we long for the fullness of that union in the holy city, Jerusalem. And so, this is our goal, but also our present reality, and we need to live as such. Finally, this charge is to listen to the one who is speaking. See to you that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Right? Don't refuse him, which is interesting and specific language. So we could say listen and respond or listen and act in obedience accordingly. But who's speaking? Well, of course it's Jesus, right? We would say that. We go, yeah, we understand that it's Jesus. But I want to encourage you with something here. That actually comes from the very beginning of the letter. 
The opening verses of the letter to the Hebrews says this, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the charge to you is straightforward. Runners, do not refuse Jesus. Listen to Him. And once again, we get, uh, we get a comparison that elevates Jesus above Moses, only now it's the elevation uh, correlative to the punishment that those who heard Moses and didn't listen to received. If you thought it was bad to not listen to Moses is really the point here. Believe me, it's much, much worse to not listen to Jesus. And so we get a bit of that, that the place of the fear of the Lord here. Run with gratitude and a fear of the Lord. And to solidify this, the writer cites from Haggai 2, verse 6, which speaks of the glory of the temple yet to come, the heavenly temple, even in the time of the prophets, The Lord spoke to the prophet Haggai and said, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the author interprets this by saying that our fear comes from the one who can shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And our assurance also comes simultaneously from knowing that we belong to the unshakable kingdom. So there's this profound power that rests rests both in our our submission to the one who can shake all things and also the one who provides us with citizenship through Jesus in the the kingdom that is indeed unshakable. What do we do? Well, that's verses 28 and 29. We offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire, another reference to Deuteronomy. So what's weighing you down? What is the sin that clings so, so closely? Is it doubt? Is it bitterness? Is it something else? We're going to come to the table. And if there was ever a time for me to charge you, if you're wrestling with something, then my encouragement to you is to let the plate pass. And by the way, when you do that, what you're doing is demonstrating to us the reverence that this sacrament's rightly owed. We don't just take it lightly. If you're wrestling through that, then I would encourage you to let it pass. And to come downstairs and pray with me. Come and let us reason together for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.